The Jodcast, taking you to exotic places in the universe with George Bendo, Josie Peters, Mark Berver, Anastasi, Charlie Walker, and Joe Zunz. The Jodcast, January 2015, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. With me in the studio today is Josie and Charlie. Hello. Hey. Hi. Hello, and Charlie's new with us, so Charlie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So this is my first time here, though you might have heard me in the pantomime last month. So aside from doing effeminate voices, uh, what do you do at the JBCA? I've just started a PhD here. Um, I got transferred up from Southampton, and I'm going to be looking at fast radio bursts. Okay, where are fast radio bursts? We don't know yet, which is the exciting thing about them. Oh, okay. Hopefully they're real. Yeah. So can you tell us where these or how these fast radio bursts are detected? Uh, so we've detected 10 with different radio telescopes, two different radio telescopes. And basically, we have decided that they're extra, extra bright, and they're probably coming from outside of our own galaxy. So they could be used for a lot of cool things, mapping out the universe outside of our galaxy in the same way that pulsars have used have maps the inside of our galaxy, or even constraining things like cosmological parameters so exciting but only if we can find more of them that's really cool like when did you when did they first start seeing fast radio bursts like how long have they sort of been around the first one was detected in 2007 and then we didn't have any for a few years and people got worried and thought they might just be some sort of interference but then maybe three years ago another one was detected and then a whole flurry of them have been detected including one a couple of weeks ago Wow. I think we've had like a couple of other podcasts uh, uh, where people have discussed this as well. So it, it sounds very interesting. And so it is. Yeah. Uh, good luck to your PhD studies. Thank you. Hopefully they'll turn out to be a, a real phenomenon. <laughs> so in the show this time, Mark will talk to Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith about the Crab Pulsar and his long career in astronomy. And Dr. Joe Zuntz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Hannah interviews Dr. Ian McDonald about stellar metallicity and globular clusters in this month's Job Bite. I'm here with uh, Dr. Ian McDonald, who works here at the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Hi, Ian. Welcome to the Jobcast. Hello. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be here? Well, it's a long story, but uh, it uh, started under the clear skies of Australia. I grew up there near one of the big radio telescopes, so I've always had a fascination with the night sky. In growing up, I moved to the north of Scotland, which has much less good weather, but still clear skies. I did my undergraduate at St Andrews, it's a fine university. Um, I did my PhD at Kiel, um, and then I came here to do a postdoctorate degree. Um, so what is it you're currently researching? So I'm currently looking at dying stars. I'm exploring the process of stellar death, and how that process of stellar death enriches the universe with all the different chemical elements. So the process that I'm looking at is the chemical enrichment of the universe. So how we go from a hydrogen-helium Big Bang um, with no metals in it to this wonderful place in the universe today where we have lots of different things from carbon, nitrogen, oxygen that uh, are required to make life. So the process that I'm looking at is basically how we go from this, this neutral medium at the start of the universe where life is impossible to something that's much more structured with stars and galaxies 
planets and life-bearing molecules that we see around us. And all those metals, all those heavy elements, come from stars. They're, they're all produced in stars. And they're made in stars, but they don't stay in the stars. They have to be ejected from them. They're ejected in stellar winds. These stellar winds condense lots of interesting molecules and dust that makes its way out into the galaxy, and it's reprocessed, and then it's formed in new stars, uh, where we can see chemical enrichment happening. So how is it you go about, um, is it observations that you're looking at? Yeah, so it's mostly an observational background. So the process I look at is how material gets from the star out into interstellar space. So it's important that this material actually escapes the star, otherwise it's locked up in the stellar core, and then we can never have nice things like planets going on. We don't really understand how this process works. We've got we've got the star, and we know that it's losing mass, it's ejecting its material out into space, but there's a whole heap of complicated things from magnetic fields to stellar pulsations to radiation pressure on dust that actually eject this material into space. We don't really know how those um, factors interplay with each other to actually eject the material. So is it optical observations? I use a variety of wavelengths. I've recently published a paper that uses every wavelength from gamma rays down to radio waves and everything in between. It's mainly focused on the infrared, so we look at the infrared because it's got all the signatures of the warm dust. Like infrared goggles, we can see this warm dust um, emitting heat uh, because it's at the same sort of room temperatures that we expect on Earth. And we can look at the bands of that dust um, and identify from those bands what's made of, from the strength of the bands, from the relative shapes of the bands, and from the wavelength positions of the bands. But I also look a lot in the optical. If I want to look at the star, if I want to look what it's made of, I have to look in the optical to see the spectral lines of the star and measure the relative strengths of those those lines and those molecular and atomic lines to work out the abundances of each different chemical element in the star. But I might also use radio waves to um, examine the process of um, stellar mass loss in the outer envelope. So I look at things like molecular transitions and the radio and submillimeter. Um, and for that, we need a wide variety of telescopes, space-based, ground-based, things like the ELMA array in the um, Atacama Desert, the Very Large Telescope, the Spitz Space Telescope. We use a variety of large instruments. What kind of stars are you looking at? So the stars to typically look at are old stars and stars which have uh, compositions very close to the original hydrogen-helium mixture that we had in the Big Bang. We call these metal-poor stars, and we can't typically find them anywhere near the sun because the stars that we find near the sun have been enriched by this whole 14 billion years of chemical enrichment that we've we've had to date. Um, so the stars to typically look at need to be well away from the galaxy where we've had very little star formation um, and where all these old stars and these very primordial stars still exist. The typical places that I look are globular clusters and dwarf galaxies. These these sort of systems are maybe a thousand times, a million times smaller than the Milky Way. So it's, it's very difficult for star formation to actually happen in these environments. And in a lot of cases, star formation ceased very soon after the universe was formed. So these represent really the oldest stars that we can see. They're important because they represent the transition from from the uh, first stars that we saw, which were hydrogen helium rich, to today's stars, which have got lots of different metals and lots of different interesting chemical elements in them. So um, you mentioned that they're metal-poor stars. What do you mean by that? Well, astronomers classify metals as anything other than hydrogen and helium. Uh, everything else gets lumped together in this category, metals. So all these metals were formed in the middle of a star. This includes things that we don't normally classify as metals, things like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen. These stars have very little of these metals because they've undergone very little of this chemical enrichment. There's been very few stars before them produce this carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and all the other metals that go along with them. What is a globular cluster? 
Well, globular clusters are some of the most interesting things you can actually see in the night sky because you can actually resolve all the stars in them. They're, they're basically conurbations of about of about a hundred thousand, about a million stars, maybe. Uh, they sit in these city-sized conurbations that um, orbit the galaxy um, in very peculiar orbits. They're they're very old objects. They haven't changed much in the last ten billion years or so. And so they they represent a really good primordial ground for actually observing the kinds of things that we want to. And if you actually go out into the night sky, you can see um, quite a few of these at, at any given time. Um, from the northern hemisphere, M13 is a very good one. It looks a bit like a sneeze in the sky. Um, it's, it's, they're very good objects to observe with, a, with any kind of binoculars, backyard telescope. That's fascinating. Thank you very much for talking to us today. You're welcome. Thank you for that, Hannah and Ian. And now... Mark talks to Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith. Today I'm interviewing one of the most venerable members, I think it's fair to say, of Dodrell Bank Observatory, Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith. Thank you for doing another interview with the Jobcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. So you've been in the game of radio astronomy for a long time, but I thought, as we usually do, that I'd start about talking about your current research, and you've been working for a long time on the pulsar in the Crab Nebula. So could you tell us a little bit about what you work on with that? That's turned out to be a long story. There is a paper on the timing of the Crab Pulsar. Now this pulsar produces pulses at the rate of about 30 per second, and it's slowing down. You can actually measure the amount of slowing down during a day, but it gets more interesting when you ask, is it slowing down at the same rate over a long period of time? Now, we started watching this pulsar about 45 years ago, and about 30-odd years ago, we started really quite accurate timing of it. But putting together some of the early observations, we now have a very good sequence of observations lasting 45 years. And during that time, we reckon that we haven't missed a pulse. Wow. You only have to watch it every day, and you can then sort of join up from one day to the next. But during that time, billions of pulses have gone by, and we can tell you the whole history of the rotation, which is quite an exciting story. It's a fairly extraordinary pulsar, isn't it? Because it's, by pulsar standards, it's very, very young, and you've been observing it for 5% of its lifetime. About that, yes. It blew up nearly a 1,000 years ago. We're watching quite a substantial part of its lifetime which is pretty unusual in astronomy. What we have to decide is what is happening in this process of slowing down. The main process is from the fact that it's a very, very powerful magnet. And like the rotor in a standard power generator providing power for the grid, when this magnet rotates rapidly, it radiates and it loses energy at that rate of 30 hertz, 30 cycles a second. It's um, intriguing to think that the rotor in a power generator is going round at the same sort of speed as this object. But the object itself is a star, a very, very condensed star. It's got the same sort of mass as the sun, but it's only about um, 20 kilometers across, about the size of a large town. So it's very, very dense, very strong magnetic field. Now that's 
the simple part of the story that it's rotating by radiating magnetic energy. Every now and then it does what we call a glitch, which means that it speeds up a little bit and its slowdown rate then changes. We don't know exactly why, but we've been tracing these glitches all the way through and we think we've got a coherent story as to how it slows down, which is partly due to the magnetic radiation and maybe partly because it's spewing out particles as well. And the particles go out into the nebula surrounding it. Now, the nebula is the remains of the supernova explosion, which went off in the year 1054. And it seemed to be expanding, and it's also radiating. The energy for the radiation comes from the pulsar. The, the nebula, in fact, was the first object which was detected to have a strong radio emission without us knowing that there was a pulsar inside. And it was one of the objects that I measured in my early days as a student to measure its accurate position to make sure it really was identified as a radio source coinciding with the nebula. But was there a mystery as to why there was so much emission coming out of it? Yes. It turned out that it had X-ray emission as well. And the process of emitting from this hot nebula was so efficient that it should have lost practically all its energy in about 10 years. And yet there it was, continuing as an X-ray source. And it's actually used as a kind of a standard X-ray source rather than one that's decaying. So it was obvious that there must be some source of energy. And that indeed is the pulsar. Wow. When you came into it with radio astronomy, it was still a very young discipline. When the Second World War occurred, you were still at that time, I guess, finishing school? Yeah, certainly I was at school. I got to university by great good fortune and did a two-year course which was all one did during wartime years, and ended up in 1943, still during the war, going to the radar research establishment, Malvern, known then as Telecommunications Research, TRE, working on radar. I was in the measurements section, measurements and test gear, so I learnt a bit about techniques for high-frequency radio, as we called it then. I constructed things like wave meters and became interested in measurements generally. At the end of the war, I got back to university, to Cambridge. By that time, I knew Martin Ryle, who was, had also worked on radar. He worked all through the war and worked on countermeasures. He was a very adventurous, experimentally inclined physicist. And when he got to Cambridge, he started investigating some observations which had been made during the war, first of all of radio emitted by the sun, and then I got involved in that quite soon. Later on, we together started working on other sources of radio, which happened to include the Crab Nebula although we didn't know it when we started. So he was interested in astronomy? Not particularly. It was some time before we actually called ourselves astronomers at all. We had to learn everything from scratch. When I was measuring accurate positions, I just had to learn spherical astronomy from scratch. I didn't know any of the textbooks. I didn't know about a chap called Bessel, who a century before had worked out in detail what happened to what are called now transit instruments. Sometimes a transit instrument is not quite aligned east-west and the one I had was about five degrees off east-west so I had to work out what happened when you had a transit instrument which was at a cockeyed angle and I did that before that I didn't understand astronomy I didn't understand spherical trigonometry so I had a lot of fun as a student one picks things up rather faster when one's young 
or what you were developing at Cambridge was the technique that we call interferometry, which is now how all the future radio telescopes really work, by linking up many dishes together rather than just using one. That's right. We started, of course, with two dishes, which was really rather like Michelson, way back in the 19th century, measuring the diameter of uh, the brightest, largest stars by using two mirrors feeding into one telescope, which was the 100-inch Hooker telescope on Mount Wilson. And he and his experimenter colleague, Pease, managed to measure the diameter by using these two mirrors. If they're further apart than the diameter of your telescope, then you have a chance measuring the diameter of the object you're looking at. In my case, it was a question, first of all, of measuring the position using the two telescopes as a transit, and there you're measuring everything in relation to a line on the surface of the Earth. And then later on, I managed to adapt it to measuring diameters, and I measured the diameter of the Cygnus radio source and the the one in Cassiopeia. I was lucky because the interferometer spacing between between the two dishes was just right for that, as it Hmm. turned out. There are other people, particularly in Australia and at Jodrell Bank, who were developing techniques for measuring diameters, and they guessed that the diameter would be smaller. So they were developing techniques to put their dishes further apart and connect them by radio links. Turned out it wasn't necessary. I was lucky and I could do it by connecting them by cable. One thing that you'd uh, mentioned to me in a a previous conversation, which I'd never heard about before, was that actually in Australia they did some interferometry experiments that managed to use just a single dish, but they were actually using a natural reflection of the radio source. Yes, The analogy of that in optics is Lloyd's mirror, and some people who did a physics course might know about Lloyd's mirror. But what happened there, there was radar developed in Australia in parallel with the radar work in England, and what they were concerned was coastal warning of aircraft approaching. So on the high cliffs at the entrance to Sydney Harbour, they installed a radar. And when they were looking towards the horizon, the dish, well, it was not a dish, it was an array of dipoles, it picked up signals, direct reflection from the aircraft, and also indirectly reflected from the sea. And these two signals, collected by the same antenna, they showed an interference pattern. They interfered with one another, so that as the height of the aircraft above the sea changed, so the signal changed. Uh Now, you can look on that in another way and say they were using two antennas one of which was actually there on top of the cliff and the other one was the reflection in the sea which would be a couple of hundred feet down below the surface of the water at any rate that gave them an interferometer which they used in the same way they were able to measure positions and diameters they worked for example on the emission from sunspots and they showed as we did in Cambridge the radio emission from the sun when it was very active came from above the spots and not from the whole disc. They went further and they investigated the newly discovered point source in Cygnus and then found some others and got approximate positions for those which they actually correctly identified even though the positions were a bit rough and those were the objects which I worked on in Cambridge and gave the accurate positions which 
really secured the identifications. Some of these turned out to be incredibly distant objects. Yeah, there were an incredible variety of things. The first one to be clearly identified was the Crab Nibbler itself. It was in the constellation of Taurus, so it was called Taurus A, and then quite soon became known as the Crab Nibula. Some years later, it was found that this condensed object in it pulsar. So that was one object that's in our galaxy. The next one to be discovered was Cygnus A, which actually had been the first point source to turn up during some wartime work. That turned out to be in a bit of sky which had got a number of galaxies in it. It wasn't obvious what it was. Crab Nebula is very conspicuous. But eventually it was pinned down to a very odd-looking galaxy. The astronomers in California, Mount Wilson and Palomar, got onto it and measured the spectrum and found that it was indeed a very odd galaxy with quite a large redshift, not large by modern standards, but put it as a distant galaxy way away from our own galaxy. And then in Australia, there were two other galaxies which clearly are something odd, one in Centaurus and one in Virgo. So there was a wide stretch of things. We added to that Cassiopeia A, which was uh, the visible, scarcely visible, but radio prominent remains of another supernova explosion, where you couldn't see anything in the middle of it, but you could work out how fast it was expanding, and you could uh, work out that it was less than 300 years old. Nobody had actually seen it as, well, probably nobody had seen it as an optical observation. But there it was, two supernovae remains in our galaxy, and three extragalactic objects. Which way was it going to go? Well, you have to build some bigger radio telescopes to find out. I'm quite interested in the quasars because now we would say, well, we measure their redshift, so how far their radiation has been shifted down the spectrum. And we say that's because the universe is expanding and therefore that we think we know how far away it is. But at the time, that wasn't obvious. And there was quite an argument going on about whether redshift really was caused by an expanding universe. And so this sort of helped contribute to that debate. Yeah, it was very difficult to grasp what was happening because not many of us understood anything about cosmology. If you think back to that time, we'd got Hubble's observations comparatively nearby galaxies were actually receding from us. Most of them, not not all of them. And he showed that the further away they were, the faster they were moving away from us. So we had the idea of the expanding universe. But how far you could possibly see what was really the history of the beginning of the universe, what was going to happen, how much of the universe was actually there, you know, what is the den- average density, none of that was really understood. So when the quite Quasars turned up, and those came from observations at Jodrell Bank of sources which had been catalogued at Cambridge, but no one at Cambridge was measuring diameters. The people at Jodrell, that's Henry Palmer mainly, were measuring diameters by getting an interferometer and putting the dishes further and further apart. One of the dishes, of course, was the, the big Mark One called the Lovell now, and the other dish was portable, taken further and further away to see if you could actually measure the diameter. And by the time they'd got over into Yorkshire and were connecting the dishes together by radio link, they were able to show that the diameters were extremely small, certainly much less than a degree, much less than a minute of arc, and had to be measured in seconds of arc or less. Now that was really exciting and again there was an appeal to the Californian astronomers. Had they got spectra of these objects and could they tell us what sort of objects they were 
were. Well, they did get spectra, and for a time, they couldn't even interpret the spectra, because the redshifts were so large, they couldn't even recognize the pattern of spectral lines that they were measuring. Well, eventually, the penny dropped, and there were large redshifts, which were called in terms of Z redshift. Z equals 0.5 or thereabouts, which is not large by modern standards, but then it was absolutely astounding. So the quasars showed that we could see to very great distances in the universe, and then it got exciting, because there was already a catalogue of some hundreds of radio sources, and you could say, gosh, are these really very distant? Are they distributed uniformly through the universe? Can you check that the universe is expanding and so forth? And Martin Ryle at Cambridge gave the Halley Lecture and everybody really sat up because he had got the statistics of these first few hundred galaxies. We know now a lot more about those statistics and it looks elementary at the time. That was the first indication though that you could actually do some real cosmology with the radio galaxies, radio sources. Wow. That brings me on to an interesting point about how people's understanding comes to change over time. So with quasars being distant galaxies and also with pulsars although much closer being these sort of almost unimaginably dense Objects. Is it something where at the time you sort of have to hang your hat on one theory or the other and say, I believe this? Or, or is there a lot of scepticism that, that lasts for a long time before people are willing to accept what these crazy ideas? Well, there's a whole range of answers to that. If you look to modern times in cosmology and you look at the, the satellites which have been designed to measure the structure of the cosmic microwave background, this is another story, but you know that the sky is uniformly covered with the remains of the Big Bang. Very weak but uniform signal. Only way of investigating if there's any structure in this is to send up a satellite and there have been a sequence of them called COBE, WMAP and Planck. And they're measuring the very faint structure in this. What scales are the structure? Now the extraordinary thing there is that theorists had really got going on cosmology by then and they predicted the cosmic microwave background should have structure in it at the level of about one thousandth of its brightness and that it should have a structure predominantly about one degree in scale and it would also have structure at half degree, quarter degree and so on. And blow me now, when the observations were made they fitted precisely to this pattern. The only thing that was slightly uncertain whether the scale would be right and even the scale was dead right which proved some theory is some patterns of cosmology must exactly fit the bill and others didn't. That was the beginning of precision cosmology. But not only precision, but it was predicted. Now you go to the opposite end of the scale and you look at the discovery of pulsars. That was completely baffling because nobody had expected any pulsating signal to come out of the sky. And the Cambridge astronomers who were first onto it and said, I wonder if this is some man-made object in the sky. No, that didn't work. Is it some extraterrestrial civilization <laughs> sending pulses? All sorts of ideas like this before it was really decided that it must be neutron stars and that was on the basis of observations actually of the crab pulsar which we talked about earlier. Fantastic. Well, you were at Cambridge and then later on you came to Jodrell Bank and that was sort of covered in, in the previous interview that you did. But I'm quite interested in how you first 
first came to meet Sir Bernard Lovell, who was the first director of the observatory, and then eventually how you became the, the second director. Yes. How did I first meet Bernard Lovell? don't remember, actually, but of course there were two groups at Jodrellbank and at Cambridge, both working after the war, and both Bernard and Martin had been deeply involved in radar research for the whole of the war, which I hadn't been. And so they knew one another well. There was a good liaison, as well as, of course, a healthy competition between the two. And the subjects that uh, were worked on were sort of complementary. In fact, Jodrell's main big job was getting radar echoes from meteor trails, which Cambridge wasn't involved in at all, so that we were able to collaborate somewhat at a distance. The first real collaboration, I believe, was when we both parties were interested in what happened in the ionosphere. That's the ionized upper parts of the atmosphere, because signals from these distant radio objects had to come through the ionosphere, and they got diffracted, scattered, so that there was a kind of a, a variation, a twinkling of the radio signals. Now, we wanted to know what scale that was on the surface of the Earth. And so one way of doing that is to get quite separate observations going simultaneously at places which had to be some tens of kilometres apart. Well, what better than to observe simultaneously at Jodrell and at Cambridge? Hmm. And that's actually the first time that I got involved in working at Jodrell because we had some, some really good observations of that extragalactic object, as it turned out, Cygnus A, at the two places. And we showed that the scintillations were very different at the two places, which gave us the first indications of the scale of the fluctuations, the structure in the ionosphere. Then, of course, later on came the question of what was I going to do? I'd been working on research fellowships and so on at Cambridge until I was the advanced age of 40. I hadn't had, if you like, a proper job. <laughs> Bernard Lovell came to me and said, uh, would I like to work at Jodrell? And so my first job here was as a professor, which was rather a rapid leap. <laughs> <laughs> And I haven't looked back since. Right. At some point, but you were the Astronomer Royal for a time. So how on earth did that come about? Well, that was a different phase of my life because after I'd been here 10 years, the question of the future of optical astronomy in the UK came up. Now, optical astronomy had been languishing because England is not a good country to observe from generally. I mean, you can do quite a bit, but the idea in those days was to build some really big experiments expensive telescopes, and it didn't seem a good idea to build those in England. Let's build one overseas, a lot of people were saying. And some said, that's no good, just leave it to America. Others said, let's look around and see if there is a good site in Europe, which we could develop, possibly in collaboration with other countries. So during my last year or so at Jodrell, there were teams going out, organised by Royal Observatory Edinburgh, to explore sites in the as it turned out, Madeira, the Canary Islands, and Hawaii, and also a, a little bit in Spain, Palo Alto. And the comparative results of those were coming in, but no decision had been made. So the head of the research council, Sam Edwards, who was a professor in Manchester, came to me one day and said, would I like to be the head of the Royal Greenwich Observatory and build an observatory overseas? Huh. Well, I was a little taken aback 
And it took me about a millisecond to answer, <laughs> saying it seems an interesting idea. <laughs> so that's what happened. And I spent seven years in optical astronomy, was able to make the decision to go to La Palma and oversee the building of the first telescopes there. And that's now, of course, a major European, largely European observatory. So I was director of RGO and I was running this place. And it's interesting that historically, the director of the RGO had had been the Astronomer Royal, but I wasn't the Astronomer Royal then. Uh-huh. I was <laughs> I was given that later as a kind of a reward. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Well, there's one event that's not particularly related to astronomy, but I was quite interested in it because I saw a photo that was kept by one of the secretaries here at Joddle for a long time, and it was all about a TV program which I remember when I was quite young. Uh, it was called Treasure Hunt, and there was a presenter called Annika Rice who would sort of fly about in a helicopter. Oh, I remember. And her. had to do treasure hunts and. This amazing picture was here with the helicopter here at Jodrell, and you were in the photo as well. Yes. So that really happened? It did indeed. I remember the occasion vividly. We had a small dish, part of the visitor centre at the time, and it was used by the public, but of course it had to have a fence around it. You couldn't have people climbing on it. Now, Anika Rice was supposed to flip around the countryside, picking up clues as to where to go next. And one of the clues was attached to this telescope, and it told her to go to, I think it was Tatton Park. So she knew she had to get to the telescope and so she was dashing around and encountered this fence and had to get over it. So I said, okay, I'll help you over and I made her back and, and she jumped on it and got <laughs> over. And it was it was hilariously funny actually, the whole thing. She got to Tatton Park and there was Reg LaSalle's who used to run the visitor centre and Reg said to her, how did you get on at Jodrell? Oh fine, she said. There was this little old man who helped me out. <laughs> you didn't reveal? No, no, she didn't know who I was at all. <laughs> Did it all end up on television? Well, that's wonderful. Amazing photo. Well, that's great. To bring it full circle, I thought I'd ask you, what has been your favourite bit of research or your favourite development that you've been involved in during your career? I think the accurate positions of the four radio sources, which I did entirely myself, you know, most things you do in collaboration, but the four, the positions of the four objects involved observations over more than a year, and I used to observe these four objects every day, which involved actually going out to the two dishes and jacking them up to the right elevation, setting the recorders going. So four times a day and night for the whole of a year was quite an effort. And that I did myself, and it's always satisfying to do something by yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. How was the data recorded at that time? Oh, on miles of paper. The techniques were crude. Well, it wasn't crude. It was the best available. The time was set by accurate clocks like those used at Greenwich. In fact, one was borrowed from Greenwich, known as a short clock, one of the slave pendulum things. That was my source of time. I developed a way of checking that against the recorded time signals. We're working to about, oh, 10 milliseconds, I should think, you know, an enormous long time by modern (laughs) standards. But then I had to measure the transit times on the paper. I just had to keep up with this through a year. (laughs) It was a pretty strange occupation when you come to think of it. But it does sort of seem as though the 
actually the means of combining the signals, you say, to 10 milliseconds was actually very sophisticated. It was just that the means of storing the data or manipulating it once it was output wasn't there because we didn't, there were didn't no, have computers. No computers at all. No, nothing nothing digital was involved at all. So when you said you had reams of data, it was literally reams oh, yes, of paper. Yeah, yeah, oh, yes, yes, rolls of paper, which we preserved for quite a long time in case it might be valuable. Were you also involved in creating or maintaining the instruments themselves? Oh, yes. After the war, there was quite a lot of wartime equipment, but there wasn't any really good low-noise amplifier available. So I spent quite a lot of time fiddling around with vacuum triode valves, which was the best we had for low-noise amplifiers. I could tell you quite a bit about developing those as low-noise amplifiers. Low-noise meant, you know, a noise temperature of about 400 degrees K, whereas 1 degree K is reckoned to be quite good now. There was no cooling of the receivers as we No, no. If you cooled a vacuum tube, it probably wouldn't work. That's just, it's just really interesting because it's like you now, I suppose, most astronomers expect the instrument to be there for them and, and it's somebody else's job to sort of put it together, but you were kind of being astronomer, engineer and technician all the time. That's right. That sort of interest stayed with me. That's really why I'm still writing. I'm writing a book at the moment on telescopes and that means telescopes all the way through radio, infrared, ultraviolet, x-ray, gamma ray and so forth trying to show the sort of unifying themes between all these. And I find that myself at least as interested in the techniques which go into those as in the astronomy, which gets opened up each time you have a new look at the sky. Well, in that case, it's probably a good thing just to finish off by mentioning your book, which came at the end of 2013, which is Unseen Cosmos. Oh, yes. And that's sort of an accessible book. Not a textbook, but it's an accessible book for anybody about radio astronomy. Well, it is about radio. I find myself quite often having conversations of the sort that we've just had. And so I thought I would write an an account right from the beginning, not to the end, because there's no (laughs) end to it, but getting up as far as the proposals for the square kilometre array and uh, such like exotic radio telescopes. The telescope book will also end up with SKA, I think, Mm -hmm. but it has to start way back with Galileo and it has to keep keep mentioning other wave bands as well. Mm -hmm. It's it's going to be quite difficult to keep it under control. It's amazing where it opened up in the 20th century from optical astronomy out to the whole spectrum that we look at now and indeed with pulsars are a great example because they emit something, at least one pulsar, for almost every telescope that we've got. Yeah, the Crab Nebula was known for a long time as being the most interesting object. Somebody once said, I think it was Thomas Gold, saying there are two kinds of astronomy, the Crab Nebula and there's the rest. (laughs) And it isn't quite as extreme now because cosmology has taken over. But nevertheless, the Crab Pulsar in particular is really, I think, the most exciting single object in the whole sky. Fantastic. Thank you very much for all of those reminiscences and current research. Thank you for that, Mark. And now on to the part of the show where we fit in those bits and things which we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So some listeners may not necessarily be aware of this. Other listeners may have caught on, but uh, there have been a lot of uh, press releases where related to astronomy in the past month. This is because the American Astronomical Society is holding their annual winter meeting in Seattle, Washington. And um, so the American Astronomical Society is one of the larger astronomical societies in the world. 
Their meetings are uh, among the largest meetings in the world. Uh, some of them have been record-setting in recent years. The meetings are held twice a year. The winter meetings are usually larger than the summer meetings, and lots of astronomers like to put out press releases during the AAS meetings. So that's why there's been a lot of astronomy in the news in the past month or so. And everything that we're going to be talking about today uh, comes from the uh, American Astronomical Society press releases. So one of the press releases from the American Astronomical Society meeting is about determining the age of stars. So typically this has been done by using the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which takes into account colour magnitude of stars and is usually done for a cluster. Uh, but what they've been developing now is a technique where you use the spin of a star to determine its age. So a young star rotates a lot faster than an older star does, so it loses energy and just begins to rotate more slowly. So previously this technique, which has been dubbed uh, gyrochronology, has been able to be used for young stars as they are brighter and they rotate faster, and also the way that they measure this spin is due to the sunspots on the surface of the stars. So on young stars, they're a lot more explosive, a lot bigger, a lot take you know dim the, the brightness of the star by a much bigger percentage than an old star would. So previously, we haven't really had the sensitivities to be able to do it for the older stars. Like some of the margin of the errors has been almost a hundred percent because they just haven't been able to measure the dimness created by sunspots on older stars as accurately enough. So what has actually been done by people at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics is they've been using Kepler data. So Kepler usually measures, is trying to find the presence of exoplanets, and it uses a very similar technique. So the way that they track for exoplanets is as that passes a star, that also creates a dimness in the brightness. So by using these same types of measurements, they can also do it for sunspots. So whereas previously they're only able to use this technique on stars that were less than, or clusters that were less than 0.6 billion years old, they've now been using a cluster which is two and a half billion years old called uh, NGC 6819. And their predictions have been matching up to 10%, which is an incredible improvement on what they were doing before. So this actually sounds very interesting because typically when you measure the ages of stars, you actually need to measure the age of stars in a, an entire uh, group of stars, such as an open cluster or a globular cluster. Or in my case, I look at stars and galaxies. So it's looking at the entire stellar population of the galaxy, and you construct either like a... Uh, color magnitude diagram, and you can uh, figure out by looking at that di diagram like uh, which stars are still burning hydrogen, and uh, therefore, like, uh, while well, the brightest stars that ha are still burning hydrogen are going to be the next ones to leave the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, we know at what age stars of a given brightness uh, stop burning hydrogen, so we can figure out stellar ages that way. Uh, or it's like uh, we look at the integrated light for all the stars like I do in galaxies, and it's uh, so we take that Hertzsprung-Russell diagram and basically mush it into like a giant spectrum. And uh, you can figure out from like the changes in that spectrum, like how many old red stars you have and how many younger stars you have, and you would figure out from that like what your what age your stellar population would produce that type of spectrum. But you need a group of stars to be able to do uh, 
to be able to use these types of techniques to measure uh, stellar ages. Uh, what uh, Josie's been talking about is actually very interesting because now you can look at an individual star and you can look at the stellar rotation of the individual star and infer from that uh, how old the star potentially is. And so you could uh, just look at individual stars drifting around in the Milky Way and just say, well, we know how old that stellar population is. And it's great that they've actually been able to confirm their predictions properly as well, because as you were saying with the color magnitude diagram, so what they've been doing is they've taken the known age of a whole cluster and then they've been able to check their predictions by seeing if the individual ages of the stars match with the age of the cluster, and they have, and that's why it's so exciting. And it's also great that you mentioned Kepler and introduced it, Josie, because that's what my odd end is about. So this month marks the discovery of Kepler's 1,000th exoplanet, and to celebrate, NASA and the team called the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, have been designing travel posters uh, for potentially habitable planets. Uh, so under the name the Exoplanet Travel Bureau, they've released a really cool set posters. Uh, they're really bright, bold, in the style of 1930s railway posters. Uh, and my favourite tagline was the one that says, experience the gravity of a super-Earth, complete with a skydiver who's hurtling towards this planet called HD40307G. And um, it looks really funky, but there's a disclaimer at the bottom that says, scientists are currently unsure if it has a rocky surface or whether it's more like a mini Neptune. So he might be in for a nasty surprise when he gets there. Uh, you can check them all out on the Planet Quest website. Are you, are you able to purchase them? They sound like they'd be quite a cool poster to have in your room. They, I'm thinking of getting one printed myself. They're um, they're just available to download JPEGs or .TIFs. They're, they're, so. they're available on higher resolution uh, JPEG and TIFF. Mm. And it, uh, I think you can uh, check whether or not these images are in the public domain. A lot of NASA images are in the public domain. So if these are in the public domain, you can just download them and print them yourselves as well. So yeah, there are three at the moment and um, there are more on the way. It's always nice to have a mix of science and art. Yeah, definitely. So the article that I'll be talking about today is also a press release from the American Astronomical Society. Some folks at Johns Hopkins, uh, working with data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, have put a map online showing the location of things called diffuse interstellar bands. Now, the diffuse interstellar bands are actually something that uh, astronomers have known about for almost a century now. If you look at spectra of individual stars, you will see these very fuzzy absorption features in the spectra. And so these very dark bands and what otherwise look like rainbows. The dark bands don't seem to have anything to do with the velocities of the individual stars. Uh, they do seem to have to have something to do with the velocity of interstellar gas, though, as uh, these astronomers at Johns Hopkins uh, seem to be discovering. And uh, nobody's been able to figure out exactly what is producing these diffuse interstellar bands. This is a common phenomenon in astronomy, actually, where astronomers discover something in space producing some sort of uh, spectral feature, either emission or absorption, which uh, people on Earth uh, aren't able to replicate right away, but discover later. 
So, for example, uh, things like uh, the noble gases like helium and neon were easier to detect in the spectrum of the sun before they were uh, isolated on Earth. More recently, buckyballs were kind of inferred from some astronomical spectra before uh, they were replicated in the laboratory. In any case, we have these diffuse interstellar bands. We don't know what they are. But you can now go online and see a map of where these diffuse interstellar bands are on the sky. And it's an interactive map, too, so you can zoom in in various places and see where your favorite diffuse interstellar band emission comes from. We'll provide a link on the uh, Jodcast page to this website as well. We clearly see more of these diffuse interstellar bands in the plane of the Milky Way, so it's clearly something in the Milky Way. But uh, beyond that, it's uh, uh, we still have no clue. All the mysteries of space. Oh, there are some scientific questions which last for a very long time in astronomy. This debate has been going on for nearly a century, so it's like people are still trying to figure out... Still arguing over it. I'm not even sure that they have enough information to argue over anything. It's more like, well, what is it? I don't know. Let's produce a map of it. That sounds exciting. So you can go online and see the map. And now, for questions where people have the answers, here's Dr. Joe Zuntz with Ask an Astronomer. So thanks, George. Thank you, Joe, for joining us on Jogcast. Been in this segment before, that's right? Absolutely, a few times, yeah. Awesome. Could you remind us what you do here? So I'm a cosmologist. I'm a postdoctoral researcher. So I'm after PhD and before permanent job status. And I study lensing, which is the bending of light by matter, particularly the weak form of lensing. So that's looking at how dark matter in the universe as it's spread across the universe in small amounts, so not big, collapsed, massive objects, but the kind of diffuse background field, how that distorts the light from distant galaxies. And we can use that pattern to give us a map of the matter and gravity distribution in the universe. Awesome. And thank you for being here to answer some of our listeners' questions. Thank you for having me. So our first question comes in from Ollie Sargent, and he says, We're told the age of the universe is about 13.5 billion years old. We're also told that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. Does this mean that the Earth has been in existence for a third of the universe's entire life? When you take into account the average life expectancy of a star the size of our sun, about 10 billion years, it seems like the universe can't possibly be 13.5 billion years old. It's said that the Earth's heavy elements came from a star before the sun, but if this had an average life expectancy of 10 billion years as well, then you have to consider that the universe is at least 14.5 billion years old. And that's not even taking into account how long it took that star to form in the first place and how long it took for our solar system to form. So how do we reconcile the age of the solar system with the age of the universe? So Ollie's absolutely right. This is a genuine puzzle. And he's absolutely right as well. There wasn't time for another sun like ours to have formed, lived and died before our sun came into being. There wasn't time to do that. But the keywords there were like our sun. So one of the most important factors that determine how a star evolves, how it lives, how it dies is what astronomers call its metallicity. So that's the amount of the heavier elements that are in it. And that's ultimately because the amount of metal that's in a plasma changes how it emits heat. So uh, if material that the star is made of emits heat differently, that will change how it evolves, how it lives, how it dies. Now the upshot of that is that stars with very low amounts of metal, like the very first ones, the first generation of stars, which we call population three stars, those should have been much more massive than our current stars, and they should have had very, very short lives. So uh, if the plasma emits very, very slowly, it ends up having a very short life, the star. So those stars possibly lived for as little as a few million years, not the billions of years that our sun's going to live for. There was time for a generation of these primordial stars to live before our sun, and to go supernova, and to spread the heavy elements across the galaxy, so that when our sun formed a billion years or two later, then there was 
enough heavy elements for the observations that we see in the in the sun. Amazing. So the first stars created the metals that help form our planet. Exactly. But they also help our sun to last longer, which gives us some more time to enjoy it. It does. True. Yeah. Thank you. And our second question is from John Brooks. So he asks, physicists estimate the universe contains roughly 4% ordinary matter, with the rest being dark matter and dark energy. How can they possibly measure every single particle of matter when most of it cannot be seen due to distances and temperatures? Looking at one section of the universe and saying everything else is the same, isn't that a flawed assumption? Only recently we've been shown that matter stretches between galaxies, so what else is out there that we can't see at the moment? It seems to me that scientists use too much poetic licensing to try and make an unfounded assumption in fact. So Joe, how do we look at one area of the universe and infer the details about the rest? So that's a, this is a, a, a very popular question, especially from other scientists towards cosmologists and other astronomers towards cosmologists as well. So first of all, we don't actually measure every particle in the universe, but that's not how we try and do these things. We don't do it by kind of mass observation of everything. We do this statistically and by looking at the indirect effect of things. That upsets some people, the fact we only have indirect evidence of dark matter. But indirect evidence is the norm in probably most of astronomy and perhaps most of science. If you don't like indirect evidence, there's no evidence of black holes or evolution or indeed wind. So really you have to accept that sometimes we can't see things directly and we have to see them indirectly. And actually there's probably more evidence for dark matter than there is for black holes. So that's an interesting comparison. So the first evidence for dark matter, which which is indirect, comes from gravity. And in fact all the evidence is, is from gravity. But it's a very, very simple chain of reasoning that takes us to dark matter in the first place. Basically, we can see objects being pulled by gravity. So there must be some kind of matter there pulling them. But there's nothing bright there, or we would see it, so it must be dark. And so that's all that dark matter has to be in the first analysis. It's just matter that is dark. So that's not particularly weird. Lots of matter is dark. Most matter in the universe does not emit light, or not much light. So that's that's not too surprising. That's not too weird. Um, But the next part of the story does get a little bit more exotic and a little bit more strange, and that's about the microwave background, the distant light from the very early universe. We can see by looking at the microwave background that the universe is the same everywhere, and that was one thing that John asked about. John asked, how do we know the universe is the same everywhere? So um, in cosmology, we call that homogeneity, or like the word homogenous. And actually, that's not an assumption. That's actually a very well-founded observation. The uh, snapshot of the microwave background is a snapshot of the early universe before it grew to its current size. And we can see in that early snapshot that things are basically the same everywhere. Not identical. So we're not saying that the universe is exactly the same everywhere. You know, this galaxy is here, this galaxy is there. What we're saying is it's statistically identical. So things are roughly the same patterns or the same kinds of patterns in one direction as in another direction. Now, what the microwave background also tells us is about how structure formed. So how the um, very tiny fluctuations we see in the microwave background grew into the galaxies and the clusters of galaxies that we see today. And there really is no way to make that work. There's no way to track that evolution because we can watch the evolution happen through cosmic time because when we look out in space we also look back in time. There's no way to make that evolution make sense without some kind of dark matter. So the question then becomes how weird is this? And perhaps there is another explanation. And so that's that's a very reasonable question. It's not too weird to have new particles. Particle physicists know about huge numbers of particles. All kinds of different um, exotic new particles are made in particle accelerators um, over the last 50, 100 years. So it's not too crazy to postulate a new one. It's not you know, it's not unheard of for a new kind of particle to be discovered. So it's not a way out thing to be doing. The other question is whether there is another explanation for this that's simpler or more direct than dark matter. The analogy that I've seen made very nicely is about planets in the solar system. So we've looked at two planets in our solar system where their motion was not as we expected. One was Neptune and one was Mercury. In the case of Neptune, its motion was being influenced by the dwarf planet Pluto. So we couldn't see Pluto originally, but we did know it was predicted it should exist because we saw Neptune's orbit moving around. And that was an example of dark matter. We couldn't see Pluto because it was too dark at the time, but we could infer its motion from something else. That's a kind of dark matter scenario. But there is a modified gravity scenario as well, which is the orbit of Mercury 
Mercury's orbit was precessing. That means the direction it takes, so the orbits are ellipses, and the sort of orientation of that ellipse was slowly moving round and round. For a while, people thought there was a planet Vulcan. People Im- imagined a planet Vulcan inside the orbit of Mercury to affect its motion. That turned out to be wrong. The actual explanation for Mercury's orbit was general relativity, so Einstein's modification to the laws of gravity to make it consistent with those observations and more generally useful. So those are both reasonable explanations to start with. But I think at this point we've almost come to the end of the modified gravity explanation for dark matter. And I have done work on this myself. I'm not an disinterested person, but I've done work trying to find a good theory of dark matter that explains the structure in the universe. And really, it's really very, very hard to do because dark matter is simple in a number of interesting ways, which are really quite subtle. So it looks like there isn't another explanation that works better than dark matter for a whole host of indirect observations. The last thing that John said was, is this kind of poetic license? And astronomers are occasionally too poetical, um, but normally after the fact. We normally find out the observations and then write the poetry afterwards rather than doing it the other way around. And actually, in the case of dark matter, the evidence for dark matter the evidence is very, very strong, and it's not kind of poem length, it is telephone directory length or stacks of telephone directory length. Fantastic. And it's funny that you mentioned Mercury. Our last question again comes from John, and it's a bit close to home, and it's about Mercury. He asks, if you could stand on the surface of Mercury and look up at the sun, how big would it be in the sky compared to what we see on Earth? Mercury is about 0.38 AU from the Sun, which means it's about 40% of the distance that the Earth is from the Sun, which correspondingly means the Earth is about 2.6 times further away from the Sun than Mercury, which means if you were on Mercury looking up at the sky, the sort of size of the Sun, how how far it is across, would be about 2.6 times bigger. So the Sun takes about half a degree at the Earth. If you hold your hands out, your fingers are half a degree apart if you're pointing at the Sun, and so that would be about 1.3 degrees across if you were on the surface of Mercury. Now, in area, which is what you actually perceive when you look at how big something is, means the square of 2.6 is what happens, is what you, what you actually see. So if you were looking, if you were sitting on Mercury, the sun would look about seven times bigger than it does on Earth, and correspondingly about seven times brighter, or probably more, because Earth has an atmosphere and Mercury doesn't. Well, fantastic. Thanks again, Joe. Thanks a lot. Thank you for that, Joe. And now on to feedback. So we've got... A nice amount of electronic feedback this week. First of all, we have a tweet from Mark Haworth. He says, Fabulous episode, guys. Making the complex easy for the likes of my ageing grey cells to take in. Oh, and a cracking panto too. wonder if Mrs Darling would have anything to say about that. Oh, thank you, Mark. Um, we also have some feedback on Facebook from Michael Olberg. And he says, thanks for a great show. I have a few comments concerning your latest episode, January 2015. You discussed the potential damage the sun can do to a telescope and mentioned the SEST radio telescope. I worked with SEST, which, by the way, stands for Swedish ESO Submillimeter Telescope. Finland was having a minor share, but didn't make it into the acronym. During its construction and first years of operation, 1986 to 1989, the fire on SEST happened during the construction phase when the subreflector had just been mounted. The telescope was pointed towards the zenith then and was surrounded by scaffolding. It was expected that the sun would potentially heat up the structure when passive above the dish and the subreflector legs had been covered with protective material. But it was obviously not enough and once this was recognised, the scaffolding and the fact that a proper telescope control system was not yet in place prevented the staff to quickly drive down the telescope in elevation to avoid the damage. Luckily, the SEST was of exactly the same type as the antennas built on Plateau de Bois in the French Alps at the same time, so we were able to quickly get spare parts, a new subreflector and a few panels on the main dish, which had been damaged by burning material falling down on them. 
Cool. Thank you for that, Michael. That's, that's really nice to have so much detail on, um. Mm, that's lucky, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I like getting this type of feedback when I bring up, like, strange, odd stories about astronomy and then somebody chimes in with, yes, I was actually there with that. I would also like to say thank you for all the new follows, retweets, and follow Fridays. And also thank you for all our new likes on Facebook too. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Or on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Or on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. And thank you to Professor Sir Francis Graham Smith for the interview. The editors were Adam Avison, Monique Henson, Ben Shaw, and Prabhu Thiagaraj. The producers were Sally Cooper and Ben Shaw. Until next time, Shut on! on.